This is The Guardian. Today, the meteoric rise and then fall of defund the police. In Minneapolis tonight, tensions are high as four police officers have been fired after a man was pinned to the ground and died. The incident was caught on camera. In May 2020, an African-American man, George Floyd, was murdered by a Minneapolis police officer. And we must warn you, the images are disturbing. And it felt like American policing was about to be transformed. It, It was incredible, really. I mean, you had people protesting from Minneapolis to New York City. to Los Angeles and just led to these really powerful calls for change. We don't want no more police. It's that clear. We don't want people with guns toting around in our community, shooting us down. It is a yes or a no. So there was a moment maybe of optimism. Joe Biden was back then the likely Democratic nominee for the upcoming presidential election. Guardian US political correspondent Lauren Gambino was covering his campaign. Joe Biden met with the family of George Floyd. He promised them federal police reform if he was elected president. We can't leave this moment. We can't leave this moment thinking that we can once again turn away and do nothing. He was saying, yes, I support you. I believe systemic racism is real, something we'd never heard a nominee for the president explicitly say. The moment has come for our nation to deal with systemic racism. And that became a big part of his campaign. I believe my criminal justice reform package is as strong or stronger than anyone else's. But alongside the protests, there was another trend quietly building. Murder rates across the U.S. are rising. A recent report shows major cities saw a 33% jump in homicides in 2020. Amid a pandemic that had disrupted communities across the U.S. and in a country awash with guns, murders were rising at the fastest annual rate ever recorded. And now we're hearing a little bit of a different tone, I would say. We shouldn't be cutting funding for police departments. I propose increasing funding. And then, earlier this month... Outrage, filling the streets of Minneapolis following... Police shot and killed Amir Locke, another young black man in the same city where George Floyd was murdered. Demands to fix policing in the US haven't gone away. Feel your anger fully, because your anger is justified. But it's that second trend, the rise in violent crime, that's now setting the political agenda. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, has an American crime wave washed away hopes of reforming the police? Lauren, I remember crime in the US being a big problem in the 1990s. That There were all these stories of murders in big cities. There were all these neighbourhoods that were at least reported to be unwalkable. Decades later, we hear that crime is on the rise again. But just how bad is it? And do we know why it's surging like this? For decades, crime has been falling in the US. But since the pandemic began, we started to notice an uptick in violent crime and murders and gun violence in the US. The FBI reporting 2020 homicides up by the largest one-year spike ever. 
jumping nearly 30 percent. And there's lots of guesses as to why. We don't exactly know. But I think there's broad agreement that the pandemic has something to do with it. Victims of gun violence are often Black men, and it is specific to certain communities, poor Black and brown communities in the U.S., where the coronavirus pandemic hit the hardest. The economy started to crash. People began losing their jobs. There was probably higher rates of death and severe illness. Not, not that crime didn't exist before, but that all of these other things sort of exacerbated the problems and made it so much worse. Sarah Arzu has never felt she needed a gun until now. And during the pandemic, we saw a rise in gun sales. Just gun sales soared in the U.S. Industry data shows Americans in 2020 armed themselves in record numbers, buying 23 million firearms. And it's also become a lot easier to make guns online. You buy the parts and you put them together and then suddenly that's what we call a ghost gun. A kind of build-it-yourself firearm that has no serial number and is nearly impossible to trace. Lauren, we talked about how during his presidential campaign, Biden made a point of positioning himself on the side of, of police reform and criminal justice. But he's someone who's been in politics for a long time and voters from the 1990s remember a very different Joe Biden. Tell me about that one. He's actually someone who's a great barometer for where the Democratic Party is because he's always sort of shifted alongside the party. Before he was president, Joe Biden was vice president. Before that, he was the senator for 36 years. And in the 90s, there was this big recalibration among Democrats because they felt like they just kept getting clobbered by Republicans over the issue of crime and public safety. Which candidate for president can you really count on to be tough on crime? George Bush. There was this perception that Republicans were tough on crime and Democrats were soft on crime. For six long years, the American people have waited while Congress and the president have debated on what to do about crime. And so in comes Bill Clinton. As Americans have waited, children have been killed, terror has flourished. That waiting has to end and end now. He won in part because he decided he was going to adopt some of that sort of Republican rhetoric. I hope this crime bill, when it passes, the Biden-Hatch crime bill... In that era, Joe Biden begins to author some consequential crime bills. One step is you must take back the streets. The most famous of them is the 1994 crime bill. And you take back the streets by more cops, more prisons, more physical protection for the people. It basically was trying to address rising crime rates across the country. Homicides, violent crime were very, very high in the 90s. It doesn't matter whether or not the person that is accosting your son or daughter or my son or daughter, it doesn't matter whether or not they were deprived as a youth. But one of the effects of the bill was really cracking down on drug sales. It distinguished between crack and cocaine, which resulted in much tougher penalties for black men. Society. It doesn't matter whether or not they're the victims of society. Versus, you know, more white affluent criminals with cocaine. The end result is they're about to knock my mother on the head with a lead pipe, shoot my sister, beat up my wife, take on my sons. The result was communities that were hollowed out of young black men. So I don't want to ask what made them do this. They must be taken off the street. And, That's you know, a generation later, 
experts, academics, activists, they all point to this bill as sort of paving the way to mass incarceration in the U.S. That's a pretty remarkable change in the atmosphere, Lauren, from 1994, when something like this notorious crime bill was authored, to the idea of defund the police in summer 2020. Take it to the streets, defund the police! And of course, that slogan was picked up and spread and became a real demand of presidential candidates who were running for office that year. It became such a popular call, but what did it actually mean? What were they asking for? So it meant different things to different people. Some people wanted to shift funds away from law enforcement towards social services, towards other prevention programs. And others were abolitionists. We still see calls for complete abolition of police departments. I'd say the most of the activists and the elected officials who embraced these calls were probably referring to sort of reimagining police departments in some way. But it also caused some of the biggest backlash to the movement. I think defund the police just in, in a lot of voters' minds had a very black and white meaning. And that meant we don't want police anymore. Police are bad. Conservatives also really latched uh, onto that. Of all the dumb ideas I think I've ever heard from the liberal media, defund the police. That's probably the dumbest. And, and I in mean, their think view, about it. You just kind of said it in the opening with do away knowing. with police they entirely. And a lot of voters reacted very, very negatively to those calls. And what about Joe Biden back when he was a presidential candidate? How did he respond to that slogan and to the movement that had built up around it? Even then, he said, we don't want to defund the police. You support defunding the police? No, I don't support defunding the police. We want to reform and improve policing, but we we need law enforcement. And it was a pretty savvy response. It's also one I think he truly believes. He's, you know, throughout most of his career, he's been pretty pro-law enforcement. But public polling suggests that black and brown voters aren't supportive of moves to defund the police, even though they are very supportive and want and actively call for police reform. So I think in the minds of a lot of voters, there's a a difference. But what happened was defund the police slogan started to blend with a lot of other calls from the movement and got conflated. And that's been hard, I think, for a lot of progressives because some see it as a linguistic, rhetorical fight over words. And they think it distracts from their actual calls for reform. We begin tonight with demonstrators demanding justice for the family of Amir Locke, a 22-year-old black man... Lauren, earlier this month, police raided the home of a 22-year-old black man, Amir Locke. Police body cam video captures officers as they use a key to quietly enter this apartment. It was a no-knock warrant and they found Locke on his couch. Police say he had a gun in his hand when an officer opened fire within nine seconds of entering, killing Locke. And they shot and killed him. Never would I have imagined that I would be standing up here talking about the execution of my son by the Minneapolis Police Department. Later, we learned Locke wasn't even named on the warrant. Say his name! And his killing has sparked huge protests. And this is all happening in Minneapolis, the same city where George Floyd was killed by police in the summer of 2020. The lock killing shows us that this terrible problem of alleged police abuses hasn't gone away by any stretch. In terms of Joe Biden's administration, what's become 
of those calls we heard in summer 2020 for police reform and, and criminal justice reform? So the Signature Reform Act of the Biden presidency so far has been the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. The George Floyd Policing Reform Act would ban chokeholds on a federal level and some no-knock warrants, especially in drug cases. Racial bias training, use of force training, improved tracking of police officers who had misconduct complaints against them. But the most controversial element of this was this idea of qualified immunity for police officers, which grants a degree of legal protection. How much progress has been made in actually passing them? Where are all these reforms now? Where are they at? The truth is the whole agenda has been stalled and that bill is stuck. (laughs) It's not going anywhere. What happened? This country was supposed to be at a moment of reckoning at the relationship between police and the black community. Why did you miss the moment? There was a bipartisan group of lawmakers who wanted to find a solution. They wanted to get to a point where they could pass this bill. And those talks collapsed last year. Lauren, I can see that coming into office a couple of years ago, Joe Biden was facing a pretty big dilemma, which was that his party's base sensed that this was a real moment to reform police departments that appeared to be rife with abuse. But now, with violent crime on the rise, Biden risks looking weak and giving Republicans an easy issue to campaign around. How are the Republicans framing this? They must be seizing the opportunity. So Republicans are seizing this opportunity to again paint Democrats as soft on crime. Fox News alert. The push to defund the police appears to be backfiring, raising urgent new safety concerns for Americans. A Fox News They're conflating calls to defund the police with calls for criminal justice reform. Really, is anybody surprised that the defund the police movement resulted in crime spikes across the nation? I mean, that specifically Democrats who embraced these calls are the reason that crime is rising again. We are number one, St. Louis City, number one for police murder per capita in this country year after year. Congresswoman Cori Bush, who represents St. Louis in Missouri, she also represents Ferguson. You know, the, the origins of the Black Lives Matter movement were in Ferguson, and she has supported to fund the police, and she continues to this day to call for shifting funds away from police departments and towards social services. That's her definition of defund the police. We see Cori Bush saying on Twitter that her car was hit with bullets. Her car was shot. No one was in it, fortunately. But recently, she wasn't targeted, but her car was, was shot, sort of crossfire. And there's a really egregious example of... Uh, Fox News commentators sort of saying. The harsh truth is we need these lawmakers to be victims. We need them to understand when the worst situation possible hits them. And I'm not (laughs) praying that any of these people get hurt or harmed, but they need to see it firsthand how bad the streets really are. And she's taken that on and, you know, completely rejected that notion. Well, the plague of gun violence in the United States has driven NYC's mayor to ask for federal help. And today, President Joe Biden listened. He's in the Big Apple having one. Lauren, you said Joe Biden was kind of a political barometer for the Democratic Party on crime. And earlier this month, he went to New York to respond to these concerns about increased violent crime in cities. Tell me about what happened on that trip. As he's facing this pressure, Joe Biden makes his trip to New York City, where he visits One Police Plaza, the headquarters of the NYPD, just one day after the city held a funeral for one of two police officers recently killed. 
Thunderous ovation there for the rookie officer. He's been hailed as a hero for shooting the suspect inside the Harlem apartment where officers Jason Rivera and Wilbert Mora were shot. The and so the city's on edge. Morale is really low among the officers, and he makes this very forceful appeal to them. Mayor Adams, you and I agree. The answer is not to abandon our streets. That's not the answer. The answer is to come together. And he makes it very clear that I'm on your side. We want you out in the street. And just repeat, we don't want to defund the police. Safer. The answer is not to defund the police. And then... Presidential motorcades don't typically rumble down 21st Avenue in Long Island City. He heads across the East River to Queens, where he goes to a school. I want to introduce you first to Mr. Bryant. How you doing, Mr. President? And meets with some of these violence interrupters. So these are people who work in the community and they go out and they meet with, you know, high risk young people, for example. It was like this trip that he wanted to signal, I can do it all. We can do it all. We can have both. We don't need to choose. How was that received by members of the Democratic Party's progressive base? What's their reaction been? Progressives are worried about the party's strategy for fighting crime, both rhetorically, but also the policies that they're putting forward. Cities that were going to shift money away from the police departments to other services. We've seen them reinstate and bolster funding for the police. The council passed eight to one, a proposed $27 million increase in the budget for the San Diego Police Department. And you have Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York. She told the New York Times that she was really concerned about a, quote, jails and police-centered policy. She said, we risk reverting back to a 90s era, quote unquote, tough on crime rhetoric. Also, I would say, I think one of the bigger concerns for progressives is this fear that the Joe Biden of the 1990s might come back, that he's going to revert to these ideas that he embraced, you know, decades ago. And the activists and the progressive groups, I think they say you would really be abandoning the very voters who put you in office if you went back and and you started to act like the Joe Biden of the 1990s. Coming up, away from the political and media spotlight, how some communities are successfully addressing gun violence. Lauren, so much of this debate seems to happen in the world of politics, but... In those minority neighbourhoods, with the people who are living the actual reality of an increased gun violence rate, what are they saying? What are they calling for as as solutions to this problem? Yes, I spoke to Devon Bogan, who founded this violence prevention program in Richmond, California, and it's since expanded to several cities. We can't reduce gun crime if the resources that are on the table aren't reaching and meeting those folks who are at the center of the problem. They go out and they meet with young people, for example, who might be involved in a gang, might have acquired some weapons, and they you know, try to talk to them and talk them down. And this is a community that won't respond well to a police officer, but maybe will talk to someone who looks like them and came from the same neighborhood as them. And it's really granular, incremental work, but they have seen progress in their neighborhood. Uh, we got when we came into the city, we saw a city that had a 
a significant amount of homicides, over 40 uh, per year. And Devon Bogan told me one piece of evidence to show that their approach works is that in the city of Richmond, where this program was founded, the rate of homicides has fallen significantly over the last decade. Uh, We got those numbers down to to 28. And since the Uh, pandemic started, whereas other cities saw a rise again in the homicide rate, in this city, there was a very, very modest rise. When we make long-term commitments to non-law enforcement-based strategies, that work even when we see things like a virus, a pandemic. He has talked directly to the president. He was called to the White House in June. So he is hoping that that message resonates and that Democrats especially keep in mind that these programs do work. Maybe they take more time, but they do work and to try to balance their response so it's not heavily weighted towards increasing law enforcement presence on the streets. Lauren, listening to you describe the success that Devon Boggan has had with that program in Richmond, California, it, it makes me think that we're presented with this false choice, which is you either defund the police or you fight violent crime. And I wonder if that's actually not true, that these things are not in opposition to each other, that you can meaningfully reform the police along the lines that people really are demanding in in these communities of colour, while also trying to fight the crime that's plaguing those same neighbourhoods. And that's exactly what he told me. It should not be oppositional to law enforcement. I think so. Our work doesn't take the place of law enforcement and law enforcement doesn't take the place of our work. And too often he thinks that law enforcement are charged with not just addressing crime, but addressing all of the mental and social problems that can exacerbate crime. And he said, no, that needs to be our work. That's our area. But we need the funding. We need the resources to actually have a meaningful impact. If we go down this road that we've always been down, we will dramatically and in devastating fashion cost the most impacted communities. This should not be an excuse to do things that have over time demonstrated that they don't work that they don't create real public safety in these communities. Yeah, and on top of that, Joe Biden, who is trying to decouple these things, to to not present them as being in opposition to each other, finds himself in, in a bit of a bind, which is that he hasn't defunded the police or been able to enact very much meaningful police reform. But among the public, as crime surges, there's this feeling out there that, in fact, Biden has somehow weakened law enforcement at a time when crime is raging. And so the president finds himself facing the worst of all worlds, not having sought to change the police, but facing the kind of political backlash that he would if he had done so. That's exactly, I couldn't have said it better myself. And the problem is that it is a real concern. It is a public safety concern. But I think it's important sometimes... When we talk about crime, there's a bit of a disconnect between the communities actually bearing the brunt of the violence and the voters that politicians are addressing their concerns to. That's interesting. What do you mean by that? What's that disconnect? The gun violence disproportionately affects poor black and brown communities. But when we see it enter the political conversation, it's often because more affluent, college-educated, often white voters have decided that this is a concern. They're seeing these statistics on the news. 
Once great cities, nearly unrecognizable. Just take a look at these images. Filth covering the ground as far as you can see. So you're really seeing the most sensational version of all of this. And you're thinking, that could be my neighborhood, but it's often not. Interesting. So you're saying that crime is really surging in particular neighborhoods, but the perception of Americans at large is that crime everywhere has gone crazy. Exactly. When you talk about crime in the political context, it's so perceptual. And so you're dealing with voters' perception while also trying to deal with the reality. Lauren, the midterm elections are later this year, and the politics around this issue, as you've laid them out, seem really toxic for the Democrats. Is there anything that they can do to try and change the narrative and get out of this place where they seem really stuck? The Democrats, you'll be surprised to know, the Democrats are divided over how to respond. Um, (laughs) There's been this big debate since 2020 when Joe Biden won the presidency, but Democrats didn't do as well down ballot, meaning they didn't do as well in the House races where they thought they'd do really well and and, in the Senate. And so a lot of the feedback that some of these members who lost, their feedback was they thought to fund the police has made them appear soft on crime, has really, really hurt them. And it doesn't matter that they constantly go out and say, we don't want to defund the police. They're demanding that Joe Biden say it and not stop saying it. Others think that Democrats should actually lean into their calls for reform and tell voters, here's our big vision for what we do if you give us bigger majorities in Congress, then that would actually energize young voters and activists who maybe would sit out otherwise because they don't really feel animated by the Democratic Party or they feel that the Democratic Party two years into the Biden presidency has let them down. So why would they turn out to vote in a midterm election? Lauren Gabino, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. That was Lauren Gambino, a political correspondent for Guardian US. Thanks so much to her. You can read all of her political coverage at theguardian.com. Before we go, Politics Weekly is changing up. You can now enjoy the best of Guardian political reporting in two new podcasts. Join award-winning Guardian columnist John Harris and a cast of voices from up and down the country, as well as across the political spectrum, on Politics Weekly UK out every Thursday from the 24th of February. And to keep hearing the latest analysis of US politics with Guardian columnist and former Washington correspondent Jonathan Friedland, search for Politics Weekly America on your favourite podcast app. It's out every Friday from the 25th of February. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Rose DeLarabiti and Alex Atak. Sound design was by Axel Kakutier. The executive producers are Mythley Rao and Phil Maynard. Back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.